0: It's uh, always a grateful thing in my heart when Mike's out of town and needs me to fill in for whatever reason. I truly feel a kindred spirit with with you guys. So much of what you're doing is on the same page of who we are and what we're doing as a crossing church. The songs you sing, very much the same kind of songs we sing and the love of God's word being proclaimed we share in common. I love Pastor Mike, I love his family, Uh, recently we shared a meal together at our house, a good, authentic Canadian meal, uh, tacos, and uh, our wives were getting aggravated at us because we wouldn't stop talking, and me and him, and so we had to uh, finally wrap it up so that uh, they could go home, but just a quick update on the Crossing Church, I've shared with you each time I've come, just kind of where we are, things are, are still progressing, God's been faithful, gracious to us. Uh, we're getting ready to begin worshiping weekly like this in a worship gathering. We've been meeting weekly since March, but we've been alternating core group training Sundays with worship gathering Sundays like this, and um, and we still want to incorporate core group trainings into some of our Sundays, but mainly when people show up at 10 o'clock on Sandal Drive in Monroe, they will experience what you're experiencing this morning, a, a worship gathering. We're kind of metaphorically throwing open the front doors of the church in September. Uh, we'll have all the website and the signs up and all that kind of stuff. About 75% of our people are, are in what we call DNA groups, where it's men with men, women with women, going deep together in life, going deep in the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to each other. And we're wanting to get more and more of our people on that page so that when God sends us new people in the city, we can steer them into our missional communities where we do life together and do mission together in the city, as well as into our DNA groups. Uh, he's been gracious to do good, deep work in us, as well as help us work through a lot of the difficulties and issues that come with being a church plant. And, uh, so just continue to pray for us that God, uh, would continue to equip us, uh, train us, show us how to bring the light of the gospel to the city of Monroe in a variety of ways. There's a lot more I could share, but, um, also as, as a family, you may notice a change in us since we were here in February. We have a son. And, um, there's been an incredible story of God's grace and sovereign will. Uh, Timothy Daniel is his name, is his name. He's actually four months old today. So a little bit of a milestone for us. Uh we, we just um, went to the process of adoption right after that that Sunday I was here, did our home study, got a call the Thursday before Easter, there was a situation where a, a, an adoptive family was needed, um, the baby was born, and we prayed for about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, it's a long story of God working in our hearts to prepare us to make a fast decision, but the next day we drove to South Louisiana on Good Friday, he was in our arms that afternoon, we got to hang out with the birth mom, pray over her, love her well. And uh, he's never left our arms since. And so um, this October, November sometime, we'll go down South Louisiana again, and it, it will be finalized, and uh, he will officially be our son forever. Uh, but uh, that's basically where we are right now. And <clears throat> so it's cool to take a, a child that you didn't know existed, and in one weekend, he becomes your family forever. And uh, it's a beautiful picture of what God's done for us in making us, taking us from being strangers to being his family forever through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you look us up on Facebook, we've been very open with a lot of the details about adoption. Uh, we're friends with Mike, so you can kind of look us up through that. Uh, we have a page that we started because we, we want to help foster an environment of adoption in our area uh, for people to see that not only is it very doable, much more doable than people think, but it's, it's good. And even if God doesn't call you to bring a child into your home, you can be a part of helping other families bring children into their homes. And so this is part of who we are as the body of Christ, loving the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, right? That's true religion. And so we want to help uh, spread that as far and wide as we possibly can. But we're not here about the Crossing Church. We're not here about our family. Uh, we're here about Jesus. And so let's turn our attention to him in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. All the passages that Ryan's been reading just uh, right in line with where our focus will be today. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, we are eternally thankful, so grateful that you have given us your word, you have chosen to reveal yourself so we can know you. And you've preserved your word all of these years so that we hold in our hands what we know and believe is the very word of God. Your word gives life and your word sustains life and your word brings challenge and encouragement and conviction. And so, Father, I ask for your word to do Empowered by your spirit, what only your work can do in our hearts today. And we'll give you the praise and the glory because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is so good. Uh, makes the focus and message of the Bible, the gospel, so clear. I mean, all through the scriptures, Jesus is the center point of the scriptures. Everything's pointing to him. Everything is about him. But in passages like this, it's just crystal clear. More so than, say, the passages in Leviticus where you're trying to discern if you have leprosy or whether somebody's committed adultery. More so than, say, the Hebrew poetry passages where it's a little obscure. This passage and passages like it make it crystal clear who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Many scholars believe this was actually a hymn in the early church, much like the passage we read in 1 Timothy 3. That was a hymn in the early church. And so Paul here is opening this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing to a group of people he's never actually met, right? This church of Colossae was planted by a man by the name of Epaphras who heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus. He goes back to his hometown of Colossae, begins to share the gospel and demonstrate a transformed life by the gospel. People start getting saved. Disciples are being made. A church is born and now Paul, they're having trouble, is contacted by Epaphras saying, hey, we got issues, can you help me out? And he writes this letter to them to, to help them deal with some false teachers who are rising up in the church. And Paul is opened this letter by saying things that he's thankful for, things that he sees in them. He's grateful for the evidence of the gospel already that he hears about in them. And then he just breaks off into this song. Just, just starts singing this incredible hymn about who Jesus is. Who Christ is, what Christ has done. So, so picking up in verse 13 and 14, look at that. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So who is this Son? This is who God the Father, if you go back and look at the context, God the Father, the Lord, has, has done. He's done this through His Son. So who is this Son? He is the image of the invisible God, number one. The image of the invisible God. God is spirit. Jesus said this to the woman at the well in John 4. So how can we see the invisible? We only see the invisible if the invisible chooses to make itself visible. And that's what God, God has done through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. No one has seen God but this man, Jesus, the image, the exact representation of God has made the invisible God known. We were created according to or in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. One of Jesus' disciples, Philip, you may remember this in John 14, asked him one time, how can we know God? Show us the Father. And Philip, and Jesus tells to Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is God revealed. Secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation. This is a favorite verse that some groups like to use to claim that Jesus was created. He was not co-eternal, pre-existent to creation. There's just one huge problem. The very next stanza says, by him all things were created. If Jesus was created and everything was created by him, how could he be involved in creating himself? Logically, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't work. So firstborn here does not refer to the first one created, just like in the Old Testament where God refers to Israel as the firstborn nation. They weren't the first nation on the earth. Firstborn speaks of prominence, rank, importance, and there is nothing in no one in all creation that is more prominent or ranked ahead of Jesus Christ. The firstborn gets all the inheritance rights, and so does Jesus. Thirdly, it says he's the creator of all things. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That passage in John 1 refers to Jesus as the word or the logos. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse and divide the earth into land and sea. Let there be a sun and moon and star- stars. God spoke into creation. God spoke creation into existence. God said, let there be, and there was. This is the word of God, the logos of God. So who is this word? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is an Old Testament word that means Tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people in a structure that he told them to build called a tabernacle. Later, the temple. Jesus comes and he tabernacles among us when the word becomes flesh. Jesus himself referred to himself as the temple. Even more amazing is who is the temple now? Look around. We are. We are now the dwelling place of God, the naos of God, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You you and me. Is that mind-blowing? God dwells in us. The presence of God on this earth is in his people, the church. I mean, how many of you wake up every day and look in the mirror and say, ah, the presence of God. We don't usually think of that. But that's who you are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit alive inside of you. That is your identity all the time. It doesn't come on you and leave you like it did in the Old Testament. It's with you all the time. Every day, you, child of God, Holy Spirit in you, Christ in you, you are the dwelling place of God, the place where God resides in this earth. In all things, a list here, Paul tells us, intended to emphasize these believers in Colossians 1, that all things, including all spiritual powers, which helps us to piece together this heretical teaching that was springing up in their midst. In other words, the false teachers were beginning to maybe say that there is other spiritual powers that are more powerful than Jesus, and Paul is already laying the groundwork to deal with that by saying all things, including all powers, whether it's angelic, demonic, spiritual, whatever power you want to claim, all things were created by him. If you create everything from nothing, part of the package deal is sovereignty over all things. Like none of us create anything from nothing. We all start with something. But Jesus, God, created everything from nothing and part of the package is that He gets to rule over all of it because He made it. Including all powers. All spiritual authorities. Fourthly, this passage tells us that He is before all things and sustains all things. This speaks to His pre-existence. He existed before anything else existed. There was God, and then out of nothing, God called all things into existence with His Word. And now, all things continue to exist and hold together because of Christ. The reason the sun still burns, the reason the planets still orbit the sun on a regular pattern. The reason the sun rises in the east and sets in the west every single day. The reason the trees and plants bud out in the spring and lose their leaves in the fall and winter. The reason the hydraulic cycle continues to move water through creation, through evaporation, condensation, precipitation. The reason gravity continues and electrons move charges from atom to atom and molecule to molecule. The reason your heart is beating right now and you're doing nothing Thing to make it beat, the reason trillions of cells in your body every day do things to help you live and be healthy, and you do nothing to make that happen, like you're not exerting energy and effort, i got, I got to grow, i to, got to kill the dead cells and birth new cells, I've got to make my heart beat, I've got to make my lung, the reason all of that happens every single day, you see, you breathe, you smell, you taste, the reason you wake up in your right mind every single day is because of Jesus Christ. He made you as He made everything. He sustains you as He sustains every single thing. It's all because of Jesus. It's it's why He's such a big deal. It's why everything is about Him and for Him. Now, we have a little bit of a transition. Some call the first three verses the old creation or the supremacy of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Now we move to the new creation or the sufficiency of Jesus and what Jesus has done. So number five, the fifth characteristic we find out about Jesus is that he is the head of the body of the church. Christ is the head of the body, the head of the church, the body of Christ. You can lose many parts of your body, arm, fingers, toes, legs, ears, nose, even some organs you can get rid of, but you cannot lose your head. You lose your head, you're dead. Like we're not doing head transplant surgeries anytime soon. It's just, it's too complicated. You can't can't wire everything back together and make it work the way it's supposed to work. You lose your head and you have no life. The head is the source of life for the body. The head is the source of direction for the body. So it's clear what the role of Jesus is for His church. He's the boss. Like like the leaders of the Crossing Church, the leaders here at Alls Chapel Bible Church, they have one role, to lead you to follow Christ. As long as... We as leaders lead you to follow Christ and follow us. We can can say that boldly with confidence. We're leading you to follow Christ and follow us. That's your role. If we're not leading you to follow Christ, then call us out. That's also your role. We as leaders of churches are not above accountability. So let us know if we're not leading you to follow Christ and make much of Christ. That's our role. Not to lead you to follow me Mike's not here to lead you to follow him, but lead you to follow Christ. This is also a significant relationship Jesus has with his body, the church. He doesn't have this relationship with any other part of creation. Jesus is not the head of the government. He's not the head of any other entity in creation. Jesus alone is the head of the church, gives life to the church, works through the church to accomplish his will in the earth. Now, the government has a role. The government is a minister of God's justice in the world. The government does have a role, but this special relationship, Jesus died for this entity, the church alone, has this role in relationship with Christ. Sixthly, the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Now, it's very similar to the image of God and firstborn of all creation language we saw earlier. He's the beginning, he's the founder, he's the originator, he's before all things, but when you combine it with firstborn from the dead, we see a little bit of a different emphasis by Paul. Firstborn from the dead doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead. We know the Bible. Elijah raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised three people from the dead in the Gospels, Lazarus, Jerias' daughter, and the son of the widow of Nain. Peter and Paul both raised someone from the dead in Acts, Dorcas, and uh, Eutychus, but Jesus' was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Nobody else had experienced that. As great as it was for Lazarus and others to be raised, they had to die again. I was kind of wondering, did they dread it because they knew what was coming? Did they, no no big deal, been through this before? I mean, at least they could have had opportunity to write a book and make a movie and make a lot of money off their experience of dying and going and seeing things and coming back. But I don't know if they took advantage of that. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the new resurrection, the end times resurrection. Jesus was the first, and Jesus gives us insight into what our future resurrection is going to be like. So you want to know what your body is going to be like when you're resurrected one day, when you lay this body in the ground... It remains until Jesus returns. He calls this body out of the ground. In the twinkling of an eye, it's transformed. You receive a resurrected body that will last for all of eternity. If you want to know what that body is going to be like, you look to the resurrected Jesus where he walked, he ate, he drank, he experienced life in, in very similar ways to how we experience life, but also some different ways. And the Bible doesn't give us all indications. Like one of the favorite questions I've gotten as a pastor over the years is, well, what age will I be in my resurrected body? You know, will I be the 25-year-old me or the 65-year-old me? I don't know. We don't know. Have fun with that. Figure that out. Um, But it's going to be a body that's going to last forever. These bodies can't handle eternity. These bodies are not designed to last forever. These bodies are going to wear out. In your late 20s, you reach your physical peak. From then on, your body decreases in efficiency and health by a certain percentage every single year. I know that's very encouraging. I just love to hear that. But it's true. Expect sickness. Expect pain. Expect hurt. I've got this uh, plantar fasciitis on my foot I've had for about a year and a half. I've never had an injury that didn't go away. This thing won't go away. So I'm wearing this stupid boot when I sleep at night to try and stretch it out so maybe it'll get better. Um, that's, that's part of life in these bodies. I love in funerals, standing in cemeteries with families gathered around the casket of a loved one and telling them that, that the cemetery is not a place of depression, it's a place of hope. We lay our loved ones into the ground with the hope that they're not going to be there forever. They're coming out. They're going to be raised in Christ, receive a new body to last forever to spend in the presence of our King. Because Jesus conquered death and provides us a resurrected body. Now, number eight, it tells us that in everything He might be preeminent. In all things, in all the universe, the purpose of the resurrection, the purpose of all Christ has done, is so that in all things He would be supreme. He would be preeminent. He would be Lord, King, ruler over all. No one is more supreme. This this brings to mind another hymn of the early church, Philippians 2, 5-11. Gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We don't see this yet. We don't see all of creation kneeling before King Jesus. In theology, this is called the already but not yet. Jesus is already king over all of creation. But this reign is not yet fully in place in all the creation. Not yet fully experienced in all the creation. We are moving to that day when all things will be brought low and under his feet. And every knee will bow. By God's grace, we as part of the new creation, we willingly bow before our King. Like we come together every week just like this. So together, maybe we don't do it physically, but in our hearts, we bow before King Jesus and say, you are worth it all. You're worth all of our life. You're worth all of our praises. You're worth all of our sacrifice. You're worth everything that we are. You're our King, our Lord, our boss. And then we scatter back into our lives so that we can live out the, the way of life of this new kingdom with Jesus as the King over our life, as citizens of this new kingdom. And one day it will be true for all of creation. Number nine, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. Now this could again be another reference. Paul is is preparing to deal with these false teachers. And so these false teachers in Colossae, they were saying that Jesus is not enough to experience the fullness of God. You need something else. Jesus alone isn't enough. And Paul is already laying the case, making the foundation for, laying the foundation to say that yet Jesus is enough because in him alone all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, uh, there can be two possible meanings to this word that's translated as fullness. Two possible meanings. It can refer to a glass that is half full of water and needs more water to be full, Or it can refer to a glass that is already filled to the brim and you cannot fit one more drop. It is full. Which, of course, is the usage here. In other words, Paul is saying to them, in Jesus, all there is of God is in him. He is not lacking in any way the divinity, the divine nature of God. You don't have to look anywhere else to know God, to experience God other than Jesus, who alone is revealed in one place, the Bible. So scripture alone is our path, our authority, our word to know this Jesus, who alone is the fullness of God dwelling in him. The written word reveals the living word so we may know the word, God, and have a relationship with him. It's just like there's only one Grand Canyon. You want to experience the Grand Canyon? What do you got to do? You got to go to the Grand Canyon. Pictures don't do it. Any of you ever been to the Grand Canyon? You look at your pictures later on, you're like, ugh, it was way better than that. You can't take somebody to a ditch on the side of your road, in your yard, and say, this is kind of like the Grand Canyon. You want to experience the fullness of God. You've got to take people to Jesus. Nothing else will suffice. He alone is the source in whom God dwells. And it pleases God. It pleases God to dwell all of his fullness in Jesus. Number 10, reconcile all things through his blood. Now, some here have used this verse in uh, verse 20 to argue for some kind of universal salvation. Because Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, then one day God will overwhelm creation with his love and all of creation will be saved. The only problem with that is the rest of the Bible. Uh, just a few verses later, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public example of them triumphing triumphing over them in it. That doesn't sound like reconciliation. It sounds like a beatdown, a public spectacle. Not to mention much more explicit passages spoken by Jesus himself, like Matthew 13, 47 through 50, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net which was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into the baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like everybody's being reconciled to Jesus. So then what does this passage mean? Well, this language picks up the Old Testament idea of shalom, our peace, our well-being. And that God is working to bring a universal shalom or peace or well-being to all of creation. But this peace is rooted in Christ Jesus and reconciliation is provided through his sacrifice on the cross alone. It's the common mistake people have with Jesus in our culture. Like at Christmas time, we think that the angels said to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to all men. We think that because that's what the King James Version says. That's what's in Christmas cards. But Jesus has not come to bring peace to all men. It's a poor translation of the original Greek. Every other translation gets it right when it actually says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he finds favor or is pleased. Favor is the idea of grace. Who has peace with God through Jesus Christ? Those who have received his favor or grace. Remember, or think back to the beginning of Paul's letters. He always says, grace and peace to you. Grace of God always precedes the peace of God. You don't have peace with God until you have received the grace of God. So those who are going to be reconciled to the Prince of Peace are those who have experienced the grace of God, the peace of God, by being reconciled to Him through the cross. Those are going to experience the shalom of God, the well-being of God, the peace of God. To all else, there will be the sword and judgment. And when all things are new and made right, there will be this eternal state of peace and shalom and reconciliation heartbreakingly, not everybody will get to experience that, which is why we have a mission to go and make disciples of all nations. Creation will experience this. Creation will be a part of this final reconciliation. Paul writes in Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth into now. Heaven is not ethereal. All up there somewhere. We're going to kind of be these little invisible spirits floating around on clouds and playing harps and singing songs all the time. Heaven is a tangible place. John said in Revelation that he saw the new heavens and the new earth coming down. Heaven is going to be the the new heavens and new earth coming down and making new this creation that we already exist on. This this world's going to be remade into the creation that God had originally intended for it to be, but even better. That that is heaven, and creation itself can't wait to get rid of the birth pains of sin, the 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 curse of sin that causes sin and sickness and disease and and natural disasters and tornadoes and earthquakes and all these things of destruction, creation can't wait to get rid of that. It's like um, Aslan says in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that there is a deeper magic that the white witch herself did not know about, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. All things become new. That's what we're caught up in. That's what God's working towards and leading us towards. If the church at Colossae was being tempted to question the sufficiency of Jesus, Paul just pulled back the curtain to reveal Jesus in all of his splendor and glory. It's almost as if he is saying, this is who he is. Are you going to tell me he's not enough? These false teachers are, are tempting you to run to, to angels or Old Testament rituals or mystical powers or all these other things to find the fullness of God. Here's Jesus. He is enough. You don't have to look anywhere else. God's done it all through Him. And so what do you think, Chapel Bible Church? How does this image of Jesus fall on you? If you could sum up all these incredible truths about Christ in one idea, it could be this. Jesus is supreme over all things that he might be preeminent in everything. Jesus is supreme over all things that he might be preeminent in everything. One idea is an established reality. Jesus is supreme over all things. There's nobody like him. He is God. He created, sustains all things. He's the firstborn in order of rank and importance. He is the, he has all of these things regardless of how anyone responds to him. This is who he is, supreme over all. The other idea is an ever-growing reality that he might be preeminent in everything. So Jesus is working through his body, through the church, to bring new life to more and more people who will experience the supremacy of Jesus now. and is leading to a day when all people will experience the supremacy of Jesus forever. Globally, this is happening as gospel goes from person to person and people are reconciled back to the Creator through Jesus Christ. Individually, this happens in us in an ever-increasing manner as we see, repent, and believe in the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. He becomes more and more preeminent in our lives as we grow in Him. And so what are the implications for us I want to focus on what I think is the major implication of this passage in light of the context. Paul is thank God for the evidence of God's grace and the gospel in them. He's praying for that to show up more and more and all of that's possible. Why? Look at verse 13 and 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Then look at the verses right after this passage. Verse 20 through 23. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in the heaven and making peace by the blood of His cross and you and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If this hymn is about the supremacy of Jesus above all things, and the context is how this supreme Jesus is applying His work to His people, the church, because of His sacrifice on the cross and the gospel, then it's helpful for us to consider why we need this so much. Why do we need to see the supremacy of Jesus? Why do we need to experience the supremacy of Jesus through the, the death of Jesus on the cross in the gospel. The reason we need it so much is because Jesus came to solve our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is the sin that's inside of us. Like we're all really good at seeing the sin inside of others. I mean, it's easy to see evil in our world. Planned Parenthood, enough said. Unadulterated evil that we hope God brings the sword of justice against But do you so easily see the sin that is in you? And are you equally as angered and broken over the sin that is in you? We are born with a sin nature. We know that. Paul talks about that in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born with a bent towards sin. As Timothy, as awesome as he is, I know he looks just like me except he has more hair as awesome as Timothy is, he's a sinner. I mean, he's so selfish right now, he didn't even know he's selfish, and that's going to be for the next several years. Like, he really thinks the whole world revolves around him. Every time I cry, people show up. Every time I'm hungry, they feed me. I'm dirty, they change me. Like, the whole world revolves around me, and that's going to continue through his toddler years. Kids really think that. There's just a natural bent towards self selfishness and self-centeredness. There's this bent towards sin. We We don't have to do anything, and he's going to do wrong. And we do that. We worship the created over the creator. We love sin more than we love Jesus. Sin actually in the moment of temptation is more attractive than Jesus. Uh, I was in eighth grade, coming home from school, riding the school bus. Western Oak Junior High. just doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, man, it was hot. I was so thirsty. And this kid next to me had this A&W root beer, can of Coke. Hadn't been opened. It's cold. It's condensation on the outside. It's just like a commercial, man. I was just i was salivating. Oh, my gosh. I just want to drink that root beer. And I had no money. I couldn't give any money. What I did have, I had a, a gold chain necklace. My parents had bought me this gold chain when I graduated fifth grade when we lived in Baton Rouge. So there was sentimental value. It was pretty cheap. Like, it's already turning colors. So there wasn't a lot of monetary value. But it was sentimental. Like, they were recognizing this milestone in my life. And so I made, I made the offer. If you give me that a and root beer, I'll give you this gold chain. I was like one of the last kids to get off the bus. I was going to be on the bus for another 30 minutes. But I had to drink that root beer right then. And he swapped. And I cracked it open, threw it back. Oh, my gosh, it was so satisfying. For like five minutes. Which is always the case when you're really hot and thirsty and you drink a Coke. It's like really good for about five minutes. And you're like, why did I do that? I can't. I'm not more thirsty. And that's, that's how it is with sin. In that moment of temptation, it is that satisfying. You're willing to give up something you value or betray someone you love. Because in that moment, sin looks that satisfying. It's the same way the person who's lusting after someone, that person is actually more beautiful than Jesus When we cheat or steal, we're not overcome by the horror of our sin. We're thinking in our minds, how can we spend this extra money we now have? Sexual sin is more appealing in that moment than abstaining. Sin is attractive. In other words, we need God's grace just to help us to see sin as ugly as it is. Which is why often our greatest and our deepest sins are not the obvious ones, like sexual immorality and lying and cheating and being mean to people. Often our most deadly sins and the sins we struggle with the most are when we take good things and we make them supreme things and what we worship and value more than Jesus. When we create idols, we need to see, know, and feel that Jesus is better than our sins and our idols. Idols are when we take good things and we make them ultimate things and they become sinful things. It could be a relationship so I have to date this person or I have to marry this kind of person or I will be crushed. How many guys in here or how many girls in here who are, who are already married could look back to your junior high, high school, college years and say, man, I really thought she was the one or he was the one. And when it didn't work out, I was crushed. Why? Because you began to worship them. They became an idol in your heart that you loved more than God and loved more than Jesus. It could be parents making idols of their kids or kids making idols of their parents. So, like, before we had kids, and even, even when we only had two kids, Jennifer would say something like, and she, she said I could share this. She would say something like this. The worst thing I could imagine is having a child, uh, in having a child is having one that would end up in the NICU, Neonative Intensive Care Unit. Like, that would be the worst thing. As, I, as a mama, could not take care of my kid. I would have to trust doctors and nurses. So Sarah, our third daughter, is born 13 weeks early. She spends her first 65 days in the NICU. Five months of her first nine months, she's in the hospital. She's doing great now, six years old, awesome. But Jennifer will tell you that the thing that she had to learn during that first year of life when it was so hard is she had to learn that God actually cares more about her kids than she does. God is more equipped and able to take care of her kids than she is. And she needs to stop trusting in herself to protect her kids. but Start trusting in God to take care of her kids. That even when bad things happen to us and our kids, he is for our good and his glory and we can trust our Father in heaven. And that was a, a big battle that her and frankly many moms, so now, now it continues with Tim. And a few weeks ago we sent our oldest, Abigail, to summer camp by herself for the first time and she had to walk that out. She said, I'm not going to eat candy this week. I'm just going to pray for Abigail. And she realized how much candy she actually eats during the week because she was praying a lot for Abigail. Um, Lord willing, Abigail and I will be in Nicaragua in December to do some mission work and explore a future partnership between our church and the group down there. And Jennifer's going to have to walk that out again. Trust God. Not uh, worship the safety and protection and well-being of her kids and her husband over trusting Jesus. Our idols can be anything, people, jobs, hobbies, anything we elevate to supremacy over Jesus. Anything that becomes the basis of our identity, emotions, loves, and desires about Jesus. Like what do you really, really love? What do you really, really hate? can help you get a clue as to who your idols are and what your idols are. John Calvin said our hearts are idol-making factories. One of mine, the one idol that I struggle with a lot is success. I want to be successful. I want to be thought of as successful. And I believe the things that I want to be successful in are godly, like a healthy church, a disciple-making movement in Monroe and to the, to the nations, uh, um, gospel centrality. There's nothing wrong with godly ambition, but it becomes an idol for me when I place my identity, worth, value, and emotions in success, to be seen as a successful pastor, successful church planter. And so one of the works that God's grace had to work in me over the last year and a half was to bring me to a point where I could say and really mean it and feel it and experience it that the crossing church could absolutely flop, fall on its face, and fail. And I would be okay because I have Jesus. You can lose your job and you're going to be okay because you have Jesus. You can lose that person you love and you're going to be okay because you have Jesus. It still hurts. It still stings. It's still weeping and gnashing. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not taking any of the pain away. But you're going to be okay because you have Jesus. You feel that. You not live in fear over losing that. This is how we work through dealing with our idols. And the battle continues because I'll get really, really excited and confident because all the silly things are are happening. We have a lot of people that show up on Sunday, I'll get crushed and I'll fight discouragement when certain things go wrong. And and so I had to to realize that every every person that that I know can think of me as a failure, but because I have Jesus, he never sees me as a failure. May have failed at some things, but I'm not a failure because I have him. Jesus is supreme over the sins we indulge in. Jesus is supreme over the idols we create. Do you see that this morning, church? Do you know that? Do you feel that? And So we continue to sin because we often don't see Jesus is better or more desirable than that sin in the moment. And here Paul pulls back the curtain to help us to see how desirable Jesus is and all that Jesus has done to forgive us and reconcile us back to our Creator. And it's that picture of Christ, that image, the truth and reality of Christ that can help us resist temptation. Say no to sin, to hate sin, to love Jesus more than sin. You see, there's usually two wrong responses to sin. First, we say our sins don't matter. Because God loves me, because I'm forgiven, then I'm good. I've got my ticket to heaven punched. I prayed the prayer, walked the aisle, got baptized. It doesn't really matter if I sin. And while Romans 8.1 is true, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We never live a condemned life if we are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't tell us that when we make a mockery of sin, when we don't care about sin, we're making a mockery of God's grace and the price that Jesus paid to absorb God's wrath for our sin. And so see the glory of the sacrifice of Jesus, rejected, beaten, spit on, beard ripped out, crown of thorns, punched, cursed, abandoned, hated, abused, betrayed, nailed, forsaken by his Father. See the price that was paid. We say salvation is free because we can't buy it or pay it back, but salvation is costly. And when we're tempted to make little of our sin, remember that the whole plan of redemption was set in motion because of one sin. Jesus paid the price for trillions of sins, but it was all set in motion because of one sin. See the cost of your salvation and don't make a mockery of the cross by shrugging your shoulders at sin. But it's equally as wrong to make too much of your sin. To think your sins are so great, you can't be forgiven, you can't be loved, you can't be accepted, you can't be embraced by your Father in heaven. And we sound very humble. I just can't forgive myself. But it's actually pride The God of the universe can come and send his son to die willingly and lovingly for all of your sins and he can forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, but you can't? Who do you think you are? Greater than God, more holy and righteous and just than God? See, everything Jesus did through the lens of his love for you, he willingly, in love, went through all the horrors of the cross so he could call you brother, sister, so the Father could call you son and daughter forever. As God sees the Son with whom he is always well-pleased, you are in the Son. And so you in Christ are always well-pleasing to the Father. Always. 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 He is the basis of your righteousness, not your works. And so, where in your life this morning do you need to experience to know and to feel the supremacy of Jesus over sin? The proper response to our sins and our, saviors, and our Savior is to see how horrible our sins are, but how mighty Jesus is, and how loving and gracious He is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to set the captives free. And now we are freed not to pursue sin, but to pursue Him, to love Him back, to enjoy Him more than anyone or anything else, and to tell others of His glory and His greatness.